working here? Yep, sounds like it's good. Good morning. You know, in high school, most of us probably learned that prose is the primary written communication means to share knowledge, information, narratives. We probably learned that poetry is the written communication means most often used to com- convey emotions and feelings and sentiments. Well, the Psalms, <clears throat> including Psalm 12, which Zoe just read to us, are primarily poetry. They expressed a wide range of emotions. They might be showing anger or joy or frustration and depression. We've been studying, we've been looking at these words, uh, Psalms of Lament. And lament means to express deep sorrow, grief, or regret. We may remember the book of Lamentations, which Jeremiah wrote. Lamentations, the word laments right in it. He was deeply grieved that the Babylonians had destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. And he wrote this book of Lamentations. You know, the Psalms of Laments are beautiful poems or hymns that express emotions provoked by our human struggles. You know, it's surprising to me that the Psalms of Lament, this will help, roughly are one-third of all the Psalms in the book are Psalms of Lament. They're expressive psalms and songs and hymns and prayers laying out troubles that people are experiencing and bringing them to God for his help. You know, in contrast to the Psalms of Lament, let's quickly look at a psalm of praise. Usually there's full of joy, sung, and sometimes musical instruments. Psalm 150 says, starts with praise the Lord, which actually the Hebrew would be hallelujah. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. <clears throat> praise him to, according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud sounding cymb- clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy of praise. And we enjoy and love to praise you. But Father, we thank you that you also Hear our laments when times are tougher. Father, help us to be free to bring our concerns to you. Father, may your Holy Spirit guide us today as we study this psalm. And may we grow through your spirit. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts today be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You know, what excitement there is in Psalm 150. You can see the cymbals are banging, the trumpets are playing, and people are excited for God. They're easy to read, these psalms. They're easy to just enjoy. They are uplifting and joyous. But you know, that's not what all life is about. Joy and enthusiasm are not our normal feelings when things are going poorly. Not the way we want or hope. Compare the Psalm 88, which is sometimes called the Psalm from the bottom, the first verses. Compare that to Psalm 150. Psalm 88. Oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. 
For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted as among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one who's set loose from among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those who you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your waves. It's hard to miss deep despair in that psalm. The loneliness of that psalm. Especially in contrast to Psalm 150. We are emotional people. Sometimes we feel great and sometimes we don't. God made us with emotions and emotions are good. Joy is obviously not bad, but neither is depression or anger or even fear. Jeremiah, we've mentioned already, the weeping prophet was known for having depression. Why? He brought God's words faithfully to the people and they rejected the message. They rejected the messenger and they threw him in prison and in wet cisterns. Emotions are not the problem. How we express them, though, can be a problem. <clears throat> For example, anger is the emotion that says, we think something's wrong out there. Maybe someone's been hurt and taken advantage of, and we express anger at that. Injustice. And that's good. Or I could be wanting to do something, and my wife wants me to do something else, and I get angry because I'm not getting my way. It's a different kind of anger leading to sin, if I continue in it. We see emotions in Jesus. I think it was, he's undoubtedly laughed and had great joy and fun at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We know he grew angry at the hypocritical Pharisees. We know he cried outside the tomb of Lazarus. We know he, dropped, he sweated drops of blood praying that God would spare him from the crucifixion and death if, if there were any other way of redemption. <clears throat> well, in Psalm 12, which I just faithfully read, we hear the psalmist, David, expressing great despair while grieving, bemoaning the increasingly moral degeneracy of his society. But it's, it's not like Psalm 88. In Psalm 88, that psalm from the bottom that psalmist himself was grieving over his own situation. Here David is grieving over the societal situation. What's his country come to? He was lamenting the loss of godly people. People faithful to God. He was lamenting the power of the wicked. Who with lies and power plundered the weak. We too live in a society of diminishing faith and growing evil where lies, flatteries, slanders, and boasts abound, and power is wielded to further the interests of the poor, of the of the powerful over the poor. Psychology today summed this up, I thought pretty interesting. They were talking about society's lack of truthfulness. They summed it up in six words. We tell lies all the time. An old 2002 study from the University of Massachusetts found that 60% of the people they interviewed <clears throat> during a 10-minute conversation lied at least once. I doubt 22 years later we do much better. 
Interestingly, the body itself shows physical changes when we lie. Brain imaging studies show the body's response to lying. Symptoms of anxiety arise because lying activates the limbic system in the brain, the same area that initiates the fight or flight response that's triggered during other stresses. When people are honest, this area of the brain shows minimal activity. But when telling a lie, it lights up like a fireworks display. An honest brain is relaxed, while a dishonest brain is frantic. Other studies suggest that when we grow more accustomed to lying, the more comfortable we are with lying and the more we do it. In other words, we develop an unsettling tolerance to being devious. Brain imaging experiences, experiments at the University of College London show how that the brain adapts to dishonest behavior. Participants showed reduced activity in their limbic system as they told more lies, supporting the idea that each lie makes lying easier. In addition, the findings support the adage that small acts of dishonesty can escalate into larger ones. But if there's any question about God's views of lying, it's pretty clear in Proverbs 12, he says, lying lips are an abomination, or could be translated, are detestable to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. Here again, we see the word faithful. Firm standing ones is the words used in Psalm 12 could be uh, literally translated as firm standing ones, as faithful. Here in Proverbs 12, the faithful ones are contrasted with the liars. You know, we can stand firm for the truth or we can find ourselves lying and lying increasingly. As the psychology studies suggest, I think most parents and teachers know, once lying begins, and if there's no impediment, no negative consequences, it grows. It grows until, as we see in verse 4, and those who say, with our tongue will prevail, with our lips, uh, our lips are with us, who's master over us? So we see in verse 4, those liars laugh and boast that they can get away with it. Character has been lost. But you know, as serious an offense as lying is to others, and it clearly is, in our society, I think we've kind of honed lying to a different level. We lie to ourselves. We develop this self-deceptive lies. Pithy little self-help slogans like, live your own truth. All truth is relative. You are enough. Love yourself first. God just wants you to be happy. Oh, it's okay if you're both in love. These slogans are really lies that modern society has been preaching to us in its entertainment, its social media, in psychology and sociology classes. It's being preached to us, our kids, our grandkids. These self-deception lies are all about us. They're being fed and swallowed in increasing numbers. They sound kind of good and positive, but they are lies that we eventually may find ourselves repeating and even believing to our own disaster. Jesus is the truth. His words are not relative. There are truths. There are absolutes. Love is a loose term used to justify almost any immoral behavior. God just wants to be Wants me to be happy is a painful statement 
we heard just last month when a young man we've known for 25 years, basically his whole life, told this to his wife before Christmas and to his kids the day after Christmas when he left them because his wife no longer made him happy. Now, we're all vulnerable to the spirits of this age. We're all, we all breathe this air filled with these kind of self-sufficiently feel-better lies. But may God grant us the discernment and wisdom to recognize these as lies and to reject them. May God guard us and our kids and grandkids in this church in this time of self-truth and I need to be happy lies. And like David, may we pray that God intervenes and that his truth, the only truth, prevails. I'm reminded of Job of old who made this promise. As long as my breath is in me, my lips shall not speak falsehood. And I pray we would not fall prey to false lies. Perhaps you're like me and you heard the psalm and concluded that we live in a world much like David's with decreasing numbers of godly people, a world that disdains absolute truth, celebrates evil lifestyles, and rejects God's in almost every way possible. I note, we live in a state that just in November passed a constitutional amendment authorizing abortion, essentially without limits, if the doctor who's being paid for the abortion and the mother agree. We live in a country that has provided over $4 billion to other countries to fund initiatives for the LGBTQ agenda. We live in a society that mocks Christian values and virtues of sexual purity, Christian views of gender, the authority of scripture. We live in a cancel culture that increasingly is isolating and marginalizing those of us who espouse biblical views in the public square. We're being told that we should only have biblical views in churches and in our homes. We survive in a warring political environment, which offers party leaders who either wholeheartedly push ungodly values and initiatives or question constitutional limits on them and promise retribution to those who disagree. We live in a land with, in which mainline, mainline Christian churches have diluted God's word to such an extent that it's basically just human moral guidance Oh, subjected, of course, to modern progressive understandings. It's not really Christian at all. And even in the evangelical community, we find the drive to increase numbers has led many to emphasize God's love and kindness and goodness and de-emphasize his holiness and justice and commands. Yes, like David, we do live in a culture in free fall with evil advancing on many fronts when the true value of character is ignored. But praise God, it's not that way for everywhere. Just look in our church. Praise God. We are part of the remnant. We see many very faithful, God-fearing men and women who are standing firm for truth, dedicated saints, committed to the gospel of Jesus' sacrificial atonement and resurrection, who strive to follow God's commands, who love the saints, and share the gospel in their sphere of influence, and even internationally. Even today, Barb Simple is in Nepal serving in the ministry there, just months after her husband passed. She continues to go to support Turth in the ministries there, 
ministries that her husband Steve and she, Barb and Teresa, founded years, decades ago. And we all know there are faithful churches in the area as well, not just Trinity. Indeed, for several years before COVID, we partnered with seven other churches for Good Friday services. It was wonderful. And even today, we still partner with, I think, four other churches for our youth camps. So we can say that the faithful have not vanished. Now, David perhaps was a little poetic when he said, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbors. But the point he makes is well made. He was alone and feeling vulnerable. The ground under him seemed to be shaking. It was a very hard, lonely time for him. But what made it a hard time for him? You know, in the U.S., we usually call hard times as when we have a recession. And jobs are scarce. Money's more scarce. And things are hard. Or sometimes, not very often, we're in a war situation. And people are grieving and men and women are being lost. But, you know, since World War II, the U.S. has suffered wars without most of us being too involved. Because our professional army does the job. And most of us go around doing what we did before. And, you know, even in recessions, if you've got a job, the recession seems pretty far away. It's not that hard for most of us. But, you know, when you think of David, that wasn't what made life hard for him. He knew scarcity. He was hounded by King Saul for years and had little. He knew the damages of war. He was a soldier and a general. But that wasn't what made hard times for him. <clears throat> he said this, that the badness of the times were caused by something else. The godly ones were disappearing. The followers of God were hard to find. And truth was scarce and lies abounded. Paul has a different kind of a definition of hard times in the New Testament. Maybe expansive. In 2 Timothy 3 he says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Without self-control, uh, uh, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Biblically, hard times are when society rejects God and his people and lives for its own pleasures. David describes this lack of righteous people as leading to lying, flattery, insincerity, and gloating pride. When wickedness gets the upper hand in these ways, times indeed become hard for the godly and faithful men and women. Such times inevitably lead to fierce trials for those who remain faithful as, God, as the godly remnant shrinks and sin intensifies. Yes, we do live in a fast-failing society. And we who wish to remain faithful and stand for truth are experiencing, will continue to experience increasing isolation we, too, see the wicked, through lies and power, take advantage of the weak and the weakest, the unborn. 
In short, hard times are here and coming more. As we seek to be faithful, we will experience increasingly hard times in the headwinds of lies and moral freefall. Nor is David alone in this feeling of loss and loneliness and desperation. We have numerous examples in the Bible of prophets feeling this way. Remember Elijah? Apparently a day, maybe two days after the wonderful miracle of God sending the fire down and and consuming the altar and the rocks and drying up everything. What amazing feat God showed of defeating the prophets of Baal. Well, the next day, apparently, Jezebel, the queen, says she is going to kill Elijah. And, quote, he ran for his life. He ran for days, a hundred miles And finally, exhausted, stopped in the desert. And he complained to God there that all the people of Israel had given up, had abandoned God. They had killed all the prophets. And he alone was left. And he too was being hunted down. He was unhappy. What was God's response? I think it's kind of funny. I would say God would have said something like, get up, get back to it. I have 7,000 people in Israel who've not bowed their knees to Baal. You've got a job to do. Now, Elijah and David were both in pretty good company when they felt that God's causes were failing, that evil was uncontrolled and doom eminent. Two other lesser-known Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk and Micah, also experienced similar fears and had similar complaints. Habakkuk, in the first chapter of his book, complains that his cries for help are not being heard, and God is not acting, so justice is not being done. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, I don't think many of us would verbalize a charge against God that he is idly ignoring sin. Pretty strong. But at times, I've wondered. In Micah, chapter 7, David, Micah laments like David, the godly are gone and the powerful ones succeed. Woe is me, he says. The godly have perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all wait, a lion wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil. To do it well, the prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters <clears throat> the desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. But we dare not miss the point, the main point I would want today to say. Elijah David, Habakkuk, and Micah all shared with God their complaints in spades. Yet they lamented over the plight of their land and how bad things were. But they brought their complaints to God, the one who they thought could do something. In chapter 12 of David, the song we're reading today, David clearly complains that the the godly ones are gone, the faithful ones have vanished, and everyone's telling lies. And arrogantly boasting. But note the very first words that the psalm begins with. He starts, 
Save, O Lord, for the godly one is, is, uh, is gone. From the very onset, the first two words, David recognized the promise is well beyond his abilities and resources and capabilities, even as king. He knew that the most powerful king in Israel could not solve this problem. In the midst of a fast-failing society, David comes to God with fervent prayer. David's prayer to God describes what David is seeing, that evil seems to be winning. The same was true for Elijah and Habakkuk and Micah. The king and prophets of old had hard questions. They saw bad times. They couldn't understand why it was happening. It didn't make sense. But most importantly, they didn't give up on God. Instead, they simply came to him with honest, hard questions. To the God they trusted still. It is so important that we don't give up on God. Instead, we need to simply come to him with our hard questions, honest questions. Come to the God we can trust. That's our first point. When we have anxiety and confusion and despair and worries and frets, we need to bring them to God. The answer is not to worry more or fret more or worse, to retreat or worse than that, just to give up in despair. The answer is to bring these concerns, the hard questions, our fears, our anxieties to God. Paul, I think, dressed this in a brief way when he said, we are to cast our anxieties upon him, remembering that he cares for us. My dear wife, Sue, has even a shorter one, catchy phrase that says this, worry less, pray more. But back to Psalm 12. <clears throat> As we've read, David was expressing his deep concern and despair that the godly and faithful were few, and the righteous lying flatterers, flatterers and were boasting in their growing success. David then asked God, may the Lord cut off their flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boast. The powerful were using their lies, their flattery, their slander, and fraudulent statements to plunder the poor. And to make it worse, they were celebrating. They were celebrating their evil. They were believing they were under the authority of no one. They gloated they could do whatever they wished with impunity. And then the Lord spoke. Because the poor are plundered, and because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. You know, when the oppressors are at their height, in their pride and insolence, when they say, who is Lord over us? Who's master of us? We can do what we want. It seems to be the time when God's going to act. It seems that he's going to act He's going to let them know at their expense that he is their master, that they are accountable to him, that he is Lord over them. And as the children of Israel in Egypt were increasingly oppressed by hard labor and even genocide, God heard their prayers and began the great exodus of his people. As Pharaoh believed that he was in control and the Egyptian gods were more powerful than this unknown Jehovah God, God acted. God timing, God's timing seems to be that 
when evil ones arrogantly think they're in control and mock him, and when his people are suffering and praying fervently for him, he arises. You know, his timing we can't project, but his action to put down the arrogant and challenge, who challenges power and to save his people is sure. Isaiah chapter 2, we read, The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. <clears throat> God will save, as David pleaded. God will place the poor and needy who have been enduring suffering and pleading for him and for help in the safety for which they long. Our second point, God arises and saves his people when, from the arrogant oppressors when they fervently cry out to him for help. We worship a God who is moved by fervent prayer. The fervent prayer of his children who are in need and in trouble. Now, as good as it was and appropriate for David to be calling for God to intervene, and as it is for us to plead for God to intervene to save the innocent, I submit God didn't intervene primarily because of David's actions. In verse 5, again, we read this. Because the poor are plundered and because the needy groan, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. <clears throat> you know, God is not waiting for someone else to remind him what, what is going on. Uh, <clears throat> as Zoe read, the Hebrews groaned and God saw. In the last two, verse, last two words of that chapter, God knew. God does see. God does hear. God knows what's going on. We don't know when he'll act. But we know that whatever comes into the life of his children, he's going to use for our growth in sanctification. And he's going to use to help us be more conformed to the image of Christ. We can rest assured he is aware of what's going on. And he, the one who rules the universe, is Lord over all even today. And his will and promises will be achieved. Last November... Actually, October and November, Sue and I were really involved in the election. <clears throat> we were trying to do what we could to defeat, I'm sorry, uh, to defeat issue one, the state of Ohio's proposed amendment that would protect abortion and essentially void all laws that protected the right of, to life of the unborn. Now, we had heard that the odds uh, against this cleverly worded ad amendment being defeated were small. But <clears throat> that bill, that, that amendment, would expand abortion by an estimated 30,000 babies a year, and that just gripped us. It would protect doctors and hospitals from any legal responsibility. That seemed unreasonable. And potentially, it would pave the way to protect gender-altering surgeries on minors. Oh, we believe God would certainly bless efforts to defeat that. It seemed clear to us, if we as people would act... So Sue made this six-foot sign from the front of our yard we put up. We made a very sizable, at least, at least for us, it was a very sizable contribution to the efforts to uh, defeat this, this amendment. <clears throat> we put hundreds of flyers outside mailboxes in our community. We communicated with dozens of friends and acquaintances, asking them to get on board and to vote. <clears throat> and most importantly, we prayed. We prayed pretty fervently for us, and we prayed daily that God would defeat this amendment, this evil amendment. 
It seemed to us a sure thing that God would act. That evil would not spread. So with confidence, we, we continued to pray to God to defeat it. Now, I'd even express concern to, Dave, uh, to Darren that, boy, if this fails, it's going to be tough for us. We are putting all our mar- marbles in on this one. <clears throat> but you know, God didn't act the way we expected. He did not intervene. The amendment passed. Why wouldn't God stop to intervene Something so intervene to stop something so evil? I don't understand that. We were crying out to him. Hundreds were crying out to him. That remains a hard question for me. <clears throat> we thank you that those of you who prayed for us and, and with us over this, but we don't understand why God chose not to act. But nevertheless, we know that the God who didn't spare his son Jesus, but gave him up to die so we could live, loves us, and we submit to his will. We chose to trust, we choose to trust the one who's demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. If you'd asked me, what did we learn from this? I would say something like, I think I've learned that we can't corner God into doing something, even when it seems to us crystal clear that that's what he should be doing. We're believing his ways are not our ways, and his picture is so superior to ours that we dare not assume how he's going to achieve his goals. God's plans and God's schedules for achieving justice in the world are likely ones we would never understand but we choose to still trust him. You know, as the disciples responded to Jesus' questions, will you leave also when many disciples, many of his followers were leaving him, the disciples answered, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. We can bring hard questions to him, but we can't impose our sense of what he should do. God will arise, but his timing and his uh, ways are beyond us. Isaiah reminds us that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His infinite wisdom, by definition, is infinitely more than ours. In the end, we must trust that he has it in his control, and his will and his justice will ultimately be achieved by his ways and whatever he desires. Two more points from today's scripture. First, note the stark contrast between the lies and flattery, insincerity and arrogance of the ungodly and the faithless to the Lord's pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. By refining silver seven times, I means seven times the dross has had a chance to rise to the top and be skimmed off. And seven is the perfect number used in the Bible. It's telling us that we can trust God's word always because it's completely pure, untainted, and true. His scriptures are trustworthy. God's promise to arise and act, to place the poor and needy who are groaning and pleading him for safety and, sure and, and relief, it is sure and trustworthy, although his timing and means are often different than ours. But we can surely say this. 
no matter what the circumstances his children experience on earth, they will be, his children will be placed for eternity in the safety and salvation for which we all seek. And secondly, in verse 7, which I'll read to you, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. In that verse, David notes that the God who saves his people will protect us. He will keep us. He will guard us from the evil ones from whom he delivered us. He'll protect us and keep us from the craft and malice of the crooked and the perverse people of this generation. He will keep us undefiled in the midst of the corrupt age as we trust and continue to look to him for protection. In David's conclusion, you will guard us from this generation forever. Now, honestly, as I first worked on this chapter, I kind of wish David had finished at verse 7. Verse 8 goes on. He says, On every side the work wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. I thought to myself, good grief, we've been working through this chapter. You've been, you finally got to the point of saving people. You're going to protect them. And now it seems to fall apart. What? Didn't, didn't God fix that problem? What's this about the wicked prowling? On every side, vileness being exalted? What have I missed? We're back to the beginning again. Was David's prayer and cry about the plundered and needy forgotten? Was God's work only temporary? As Sinclair Ferguson observed, the world did not materially change. Evil was still rampant and vileness was still exalted. But as Ferguson pointed out, the psalmist had changed. And those God saved had changed. It's a hard Verse, God, Jesus prayed this. I have given them your word. Jesus praying to God for us. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world. I don't ask you to take them out of this world. That you keep them from the evil one. Jesus chose to keep us in this evil world for us to be the witness of his love and a force for good. But he left us with a tremendous, awesome promise. Nothing would separate us from his love. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Don't miss this part. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the middle of all our trials... He is there, and he gives us the power to overcome. That is an awesome promise. So, you know, I concluded that verse 8 is vital. It brings us back to stark reality. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. In Martin Luther's words, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Evil is still strong, and Satan will remain strong until the consummation of history, when Jesus returns again and completes the establishment of his kingdom. But note, even in the midst of this present evil, crooked, and perverse age, when evil is increasing rapidly, and the devil's prowling around seeking whom he may devour, 
Verse 12, verse 7 says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard this generation forever. Like chicks under the wings of their mother hen, Jesus says he longs to gather and protect his own during storms and attacks. He will not let anything come into our lives that he will not use to grow us in righteousness. We can trust that he who began a good work in us will complete it the day of Jesus Christ. His guardianship of us, his keeping us safely in his care and his eternal protection of his own is our last point. We can trust the one who willingly bled and died, whose body was crushed for us. Remember that in our communion today. We can trust the one who loves us so much, he will not let us go. Even in the midst of increasing evil, in the midst of wickedness, in a society that exalts vile satanic behavior, we can trust that whatever he allows into our lives is going, has a purpose. God is most aware of what he's put into our lives, and he's allowed it or even purposed it. He's using these circumstances to transform us, to change us, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another, to be more like he is. The one who always sees, the one who always knows what's going on, saves, for he cares and loves us, and he will keep us. He will guard us, for he is always with us. Hallelujah. May we pray. Father God, we desperately need your presence in our lives. Father, we need to know and believe and have faith in you. The world is dark and darkening. The lies of the world are abundant. And the snares of the enemy are everywhere. But you, O oh Lord, are greater. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, as Paul said it, and it is so true. So, Lord, may your love, may your care be evident in our lives. And, Lord, may we have the faith to endure. May we have this faith to stand faithful, to stand in the midst of the winds that blow against us, having done all to stand. Oh, Lord, we are your people. We are your children. We love you, and we need you desperately we give you praise. Amen.